you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, I want you to understand there is a massive cosmic battle going on. I know a lot of times there's imagery people talk about. There's this war and people are kind of getting sick of with the Christians versus the non-Christians and the godly people versus the non-godly people and this religion versus that religion. And there's kind of this attitude of why can't we just all get along? I mean, why, why are religions are so divisive? They're so divisive and they separate people and they, they compartmentalize people and, and it's so bad and it's so frustrating. And so if we would just all just love each other, because we all kind of have, all religions have some love in them. If we could just love each other, Everything would be fine and we could all get along and everything's... The problem is that is a myth and that is built upon a massive lie that, that perverts the truth of God and, and we believe in something that's false. In fact, in fact just, why don't we just couch this time this morning in Romans chapter 1. Let me jump there because that will help you get the context for what I'm talking about in this cosmic battle. Romans chapter 1, New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts... Keep turning right, boom, Romans. And in Romans 1, God does a great job explaining this through the Apostle Paul. The wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. There's not a bunch of religions that are basically loving and you just pick the one you want and then you're good. That's not true and it's not accurate. This truth about God has been suppressed in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. Everybody has intrinsically inside them, woven inside them, whether they've ever read a Bible or ever heard a sermon or ever heard the name of Jesus, they have a concept of right from wrong. God has impressed upon every person. They could be atheists, they could be agnostic, they could be whatever category of people God has planted in everybody a concept of truth and of right and of wrong. Not only that, he's declared his glory and his power through creation. He's revealed himself. And we can deny that, fine, but nonetheless, God has made it powerfully obvious so that even somebody who doesn't have the ability to see can feel the warmth of the sun and the power of the wind and hear the, the roar of the oceans and know there's got to be something beyond man that has caused all of this to be. There's Surely this is not the product of chance. There's no possible way. Because they have known, that which is known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they're without excuse. You might underline that in your Bible. Everybody around the world is without excuse because of this fact because of the general revelation of God in us and around us. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their hearts, speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, Did it ever occur to you that there was a time where everybody on the earth knew about God? I mean, there was a time... If we trace back, and even anthropologists will tell you that they'll trace back the lineage of all people from all over the world to somewhere in northern Africa, conveniently close to where the Bible says everything started, just a coincidence, I'm sure. There was a day where everybody had the same language, and they thought, you know what, God has flooded the earth and destroyed all living kind, but then he was gracious to 
preserved one group of people, and they've now populated the earth, and there's three different descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, I think, and the sons of Noah, and they've, they've populated the earth now, but God told them to be fruitful and multiply and scatter, and they didn't scatter, they stayed together, and they thought, let's build a big building, and we'll build it all the way to God, and we can be like God. And so they, they like the devil, ascended in their hearts. They thought, I could be on the throne, and we, are, we could be worshipped. We can do anything we want. We don't need God. And so they built a tower, and God destroyed that concept and that idea by switching their languages so that there became, tradition tells us, about 70 different languages. And then for the first time, people actually had to scatter around the world. And so they went into um, cross ice bridges and whatever, into northern uh, North America and down into South America and over into Asia and all over the, the globe. It was at that point began to be populated. And so all of these people groups in every pocket of the world, anywhere you go that the gospel has not yet been preached, there was a time where their fathers, forefathers, fathers, 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 great, 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 grandfather knew of the one true God, refused to worship him, and in their foolish hearts, they bought into a lie and suppressed the truth of God for unrighteousness. And because of that, verse 21, even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God, or give thanks, but they became, they're futile. they became futile in their speculations. Their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, they created their own gods using, funny enough, God's creation. They took God's creation and put it on pedestals and decided to worship God's creation rather than they create Torah. Kind of silly, huh? Therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts and to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged a natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also man, men abandoned the natural function of women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That which we legalize and say is wonderful and noble and loving, the Bible says is reprehensible and shows a community and a people and a, a world that is so far from God and so far from his created purpose that now we have so much uh, junk in our world, wars and rumors of wars and sin and sickness and disease and death. And all of these are the consequences of people that spit in the face of God and said, God, I really don't care what you think. I would rather worship a totem pole or a frog or a river or the sun or recycling or a politician or my own career or science than worship you. I would rather worship the mechanisms that you have made than worship the one who made all. And that's where we found ourselves today. And so there's a cosmic battle that is fighting at the core of everything seen and unseen. And it is fighting for the truth about God. There is a creator who has made everything, who you can know, who has made himself, even though he could have destroyed us all, judged us all, has graciously pursued us and wants to be known by us. And he chose a guy by the name of Abraham who had no kids to say, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you gave his wife a kid supernaturally, which would have been impossible apart from God's intervention. And he began to populate and have a big family. Eventually, because of famine, they ended up in Egypt. God delivered them from, from famine. They, found, they ended up in Egypt under Joseph. 
God provided salvation and life for them. They multiplied. They became enslaved in Egypt, which brings us to where we're at right now. And of all the nations all over the world, in every continent of the world, God decided out of his gracious heart to pick one people group and say, I'm going to set my affections upon them. He already prophesied in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman, he was going to bring salvation. He was going to crush the devil. And he chose the people of God, Abraham's descendants. And they happened to be in a hopeless, impossible situation. And many of them, probably most of them, have even forgotten the God that had taken care of them and had led their forefathers. And many of them, the Hebrew people, worshiped the false gods of Egypt. And now they find themselves in captivity and bondage. And God sent, sent salvation by way of a baby. And 80 years later, now that baby has grown up and it's Moses. And he's going back and he's having a discussion with Pharaoh saying, let my people go. And on the first attempt, it didn't go very well. It got worse for them. And they all lost faith. First, they worshiped and celebrated that God had not forgotten them. And they were so excited that God was going to deliver them. And then he didn't deliver them in an easy, simple way. But yet things got far worse And they were confronted, like all of us are so often, is God really who he says he is? And is he really going to come through like he says he has, he he is going to? Or do I lose faith and run away and just go back to the false gods that I serve, the created rather than the creator? And that's the cosmic battle we find ourselves in, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. Let me just read these verses, make a couple comments, and we're going to push through this pretty fast. But the Lord said to Moses... See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak what I have commanded you, uh, your brother Aaron, to tell the Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. That's verse 3 and 4 is a predictor of what's going to happen. That's kind of the the, almost a foreshadow, but I mean, it's just, this is the outline of the rest of the next several chapters. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, even though I'm going to multiply my signs and wonders. I'm going to do unbelievable things. He still is not going to let, he will not listen to you, Moses. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know I am the Lord. Remember Pharaoh's question we talked about two weeks ago? Who is this God that I should worship him? The, the I am, the, the God of the Hebrews says, please let his people go so that they can go uh, worship in the desert. And he says, Who, who's this God? I've never heard of him. I'm God. I never heard of your God. Typically being a God, I know of all gods and I haven't heard of your God. I'm really not really concerned about your God. And then he made their life worse and brought more judgment on them. And now he says, God says, I'm going to tell them who I am. They're going to know I am the Lord. When I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old. Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to the Pharaoh. And then the Lord said to Moses, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before the Pharaoh, and it will become a serpent. We've already knew that was what he told him to do. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, and they did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down the staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. And Pharaoh summoned the wise men. So, okay, he takes this raw, basic staff that he's been using as a shepherd that God has used. Now he got us taken over this raw 
basic staff, and he's going to use it to declare his glory. And so he tells him, lay it down. He lays it down, and it becomes a serpent. And a serpent that Moses freaked out and ran from the first time he was encountered this. Pharaoh does not run from the serpent. Pharaoh could care less about a serpent. Pharaoh's not really worried about a serpent. Pharaoh just goes... He calls his magicians in, and they come in, and they come in with their, what would have likely been just ornate, beautiful uh, staffs that would have had their lineage and their authority and their power and their rank carved into the side of these. And we don't know how they did this, if it was sleight of hand or a little smoke and mirrors, or if literally they were using demonic powers to be able to appear and show power that God allowed them to have. God allows the devil sometimes to do some things that would freak us out. And uh, nonetheless, um, and we'll look at some scriptures that, that show us that in a minute. But they lay their staffs down, and they're able to duplicate the power of God. Now, how's that for discouraging? You come in, God says, let my people go. Who's your God? Prove it, that your God's powerful. Okay, no problem, watch this. Boom, serpent. Pharaoh doesn't blink, he doesn't finch, calls in his uh, flinch. He calls in his magicians. They drop their staffs. They become serpents. And now we have a room full of serpents, which is a bad equation. And he has duplicated the power of God. But remember, cosmic battle going on. Here's what happens in the end of this section. For each man cast down their staff, they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. And still Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So what happens is they all lay down their snakes, their staffs, they become snakes. And the bottom line is only one snake walked out. Or one, only one snake was walked out with, because he became a staff again. And that is the staff of God, the snake of God, the whatever of God. Clearly, there's a picture there where God has just shown Pharaoh, I am far more powerful, and you can try to mimic my power but you cannot overcome me. And so in a very subtle, simple way, God says, mm, you aren't what you think you are, Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So the conflict, understand, number one, there's a cosmic battle that's raging. Oh, let me give you one quick thought here, sorry. The base of the pillars of Pharaoh's palace were about the height of a, average person this is a massive intimidating fortress that moses walks in and drops his staff before pharaoh who's earthly is an earthly god a god man viewed as that with the most powerful army in the world and he comes in this incredibly intimidating atmosphere where there is power on egypt's side that we can only begin to comprehend and that's that's where this is taking place and so we understand there's a cosmic battle that's going on, but the conflict will only intensify. Conflict's only going to intensify. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, it tells us, 2 Timothy 3, 8 through 9, reminds us that in the last days there will be false teachers who will mimic the power of God. In fact, it, it talks about Janus and Jambres who opposed Moses. We talked about them several weeks ago, and these are historically are referred to. These are the people that were opposing Moses, and by tradition, they say that these magicians, this is what their names were. These guys opposed Moses, and they were, quite frankly, they were spiritual pretenders. And so Paul is saying, don't be spiritual tenders trying to mimic spiritual pretenders having a form of godliness but denying its power. 
Uh, there's a lot of people in the name of Jesus or in other religions that do a lot of things that we would look at on the surface and go, man, that seems powerful. That seems effective. They seem to draw a big crowd. They seem to be growing in popularity. They seem to be really good. And the reality is it, they're, they're throwing down snakes and they're trying to mimic things with earthly or demonic powers. And by the way, let me just tell you, James chapter 3, speaking to spiritual leaders in churches, leaders, Christian leaders, be careful that you don't have selfish ambition. Be really careful that you don't have selfish ambition. He goes on to say, selfish ambition is earthly, is worldly, and is thirdly, demonic. And so we've got to be real careful just because somebody seems to be a great leader and just because their church seems to be really big or their ministry seems to be flourishing or they seem to be on television, they seem to have lots of money and big hair and golden chairs or whatever the circumstances are, and things seem to be great that everything's not what it appears to be, okay? And, um, and, and we need to really be careful and on our guard about selfish ambition in our, in our hearts and our lives because it is earthly, it is worldly, and it is demonic. Conflict is only going to intensify. In the last days, people are going to try to mimic the power of God. Secondly, the enemy is very deceptive. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 3 and 4, 3 through 4, and then also 14. I'm going to, I'm going to read those for you. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Think about this being read to you, the body of Christ. I'm I'm concerned, I'm afraid for you that just as the serpent was able to deceive Eve when there's not a lot of options, only one thing he could trick her into, and that one thing he was able to succeed. And so, look, that your thoughts will be astray, pulled astray from sincere, pure devotion to Christ. But if someone comes to you and proclaims another Jesus than the one that we've proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you've received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with, um, and you put up with it readily enough, like in other words, you, you don't reject it, but you just kind of, oh yeah, that sounds fine too. I'll just add that to my beliefs. Paul continues speaking of the false teachers who are like their father, the devil, and he says in verse 14, no wonder for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. In other words, they have deceived people and they will be destroyed and their deception is going to come full circle and they're the ones that are going to find themselves in judgment and under the judgment of God. But his challenge is for us to be really discerning and careful because people can sneak in and can pervert the truth and the gospel. Let me tell you, this is why we say often our area is over church but under gospel. And there are so, so many well-intending people that, that they passionately would say they love God. God. And quite frankly, they're so deceived and wrong because they think they love God, but what they love is Jesus plus a set of rules or rituals and things that, that are, have been added to the word of God. And their righteousness has been constructed based upon a moral set of rules, a set of moral laws that they feel like they're more righteous because they dress a certain way, they act a certain way, they read a certain translation, they listen to a certain style of music, they do this, they do that, whatever. And so rather than those things being preferences, they become the way you define and, are, uh, and, and 
grade people and whether they're really spiritual or not spiritual, really Christian or not Christian. And so they have bought into a moralism. And so it is Jesus plus. Shocked me this week. Pope, whatever his name is, is in, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful, but nonetheless. He's in America. You know that. You've seen the news, okay? And so he's up in front of, I guess, the Congress, and he takes a sip of water. Pontificates, leaves the platform, and one of our senators runs up there, grabs the water, runs off, and is like giving everybody in his family sips of water. And there's all these pictures on the web of him taking a sip, his wife taking a sip, his children taking a sip, all of his grandbabies sprinkling them so that they can be blessed because the Pope Christ on earth has touched his lips to this glass and it is clearly blessed. And so now there's this salvific grace that is going to be imposed upon them if they would merely digest the germs from the Pope, which is disgusting to me. And they would, like he never gets a head cold, like he never gets sick or whatever. I, I, just, I remember I, when I heard that, I thought, oh Lord, it would be awesome if everybody got the flu. It would be so good, Lord. I don't want anybody to die. I just want them to be, if they could just get a head cold. It's a flu, a sinus infection, something. But nonetheless, what a lie that a man who puts his robe on one leg at a time, just like everybody else, it somehow has a superior level of blessing. And if you can touch something he's touched, then you'll be higher and closer to God. And we look at that and we say, that is so silly and so goofy. And yet we live in a community surrounded by churches that cut God off from people by saying, well, you're not in our family, or you're not in our group, or you're not in this, or you're not in that, and you're not, you don't do this, you don't do that, you don't use this translation, you don't act this way, you don't wear these kind of clothes, you don't, and the world is sick of that. 40% of our population now in Washington County says, I'm not going to affiliate with any religious group because I've seen what they do and I don't want anything to do with that. And I know that's not the little bit of the Bible I know doesn't match that. And so I would like to disconnect from that. And they're not really necessarily disconnecting from God or from Jesus, but they're connect, disconnecting from the representation of a false gospel that has been embraced categorically in our region and in the South. And they're the hardest people to reach. They're the hardest people to reach. The older brother. Luke chapter 15, you can read that. Prodigal son, older brother. So the conflict will intensify. The enemy is deceptive, but be careful that you live in the truth. Love and live by the truth. And here's what, what I mean by that. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 says this. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. In other words, there's going to come a time in the end times that the lawless one, which is the Antichrist, literally the Antichrist or the Antichrist spirit, either one, doesn't matter, but both of them are prominent today. The Antichrist spirit is going to bring all power and false signs and wonders. going to be able to do some things that are really amazing, and you're going to go, wow, that seems to be, you know, he blew and a whole stadium of people fell down, and so, wow, he must have power. And so people are going to hear that, see that, and they're going to think that that is something that it really isn't. And he says, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to, here's the key phrase, love the truth and so be saved. They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong, this is, again, this is one of the scariest verses of the Bible. Therefore, God sends them a strong 
delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So get this, there's people that didn't love the truth and trust in it to be saved. So they did not love and live by the truth. And when I say love and live by the truth, I don't mean to imply that you need to live according to a moral list. That's not what I mean. I mean, love and live by, in other words, the truth that Jesus is the only way of salvation, our only righteousness, and you've repented of your sin and you've trusted in Christ's righteousness. That's what I mean by living by the truth. Okay. Does everybody got that? We all on the same page. And so they didn't love and live by the truth. And so God said, finally, there's a point where God goes, you know what? My patience is up. I've, I'm, I've had enough. And so now I'm going to send a deluding influence upon them that is going to further deceive them and cause them to be apart from me. They've rejected me, and they're just waiting till later in life when they decide, man, now I'll follow Christ. I've lived for myself and blown all of the great years of my life, and now I'm going to follow Christ and live for his glory. At the very end, he's saying, if you play that game, be real careful, because it could be that the next knock on the door is not somebody proclaiming Christ, but is giving you a strong, deluding, delusional, deceptive message. And you're going to find yourself further from Christ, not closer to Him. And so we understand these things, that there's a battle going on. The conflict's only going to intensify. It's going to get worse. The enemy's deceptive. So we need to love and live by the truth. Which leads us to the first set of plagues. And I'm just going to hit three uh, really quickly. And I might even talk about Moses hardening or God my hurting Pharaoh's heart. We'll talk about that next week. But let me just give you these three quick plagues. Verse, chapter 8. I'm sorry. Chapter 7. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let my people go. So go in the morning to, to, go to Pharaoh in the morning when he's going out into the water and stand by the bank of the Nile to meet him and take your hand and the staff that turned into a serpent. You shall... Say to the Lord, the Lord, say to him, Pharaoh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am Lord. And again, who's your God that I should obey him? By this, you're going to know that I am the Lord and you need to obey me, Pharaoh. So Pharaoh comes out in the morning. He goes to the Nile River. Why would he do that? Possibly to bathe more likely to pray to the lifeline of the nation of Egypt was the Nile River. It flows, it starts in Uganda, modern-day Uganda, and it flows all the way north, all the way to Egypt, and then the Mediterranean Sea. And this was the lifeline for the nation. This is where they got their fish. This is how they were able to travel and transport back and forth across the river. This is how they were able to, uh, to do their irrigation. And they had an incredibly complex irrigation system and how they were able to get water all throughout their land to water their crops. Um, there was the flood season every year. And that was a critical time where they would be able to get water out to all the places they need to so that they could have a harvest for that, uh, that, that coming season. And so Pharaoh goes out there probably to pray to the God of the river. And he finds old man Moses with his raw staff that's a little fatter than it was the day before. He's out there and he takes it and he touches it into the water after saying these things. What happens? 
By this you will know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall be turned into blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, their ponds, their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and that there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even the vessels of wood in and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. And at that moment, staff touches the water. The river once worshipped by the Egyptians now becomes a smelly, nauseating curse to them. Verse 20 continuing, it says, In the sight of Pharaoh... In the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff, struck the waters in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But the magicians, but the magicians of Egypt, they did the same with their secret arts. So get this, God curses the land, all the water... Even the water bottles in the convenience store, okay, that's what that means. That's the, Hebrew, the English translation of the Hebrew, um, the vessels in stone and in earthenware and wood and whatever. Everything in the land turns to blood. And evidently, Pharaoh is able to find a little bit of water or his magicians that has not turned to blood yet, and he gets his guys to turn it to blood to try to mimic what God has done, which is pretty silly. Got a little bit of fresh water, and he perverts it also just to prove his point that I can do that too. Well, that's great. He can mimic God's power, but he was unable to undo the wrath that God had poured out on his whole land. He was powerless to reverse the effects of what had happened. Now, people debate, is this a red tide? You can research that. I've been, one time we were in Florida um, and we're at a beach and uh, I remember being, there's a little section that had been affected by a red tide. And I will tell you, if that's what it was, that's pretty bad because it was, wow. I, I just remember walking across a bridge um, going to the beach in this little area that had been affected by it, and there were fish floating everywhere. The water was red, and it reeked. I mean, you could not, I mean, just, there, there was no way to get up over it without just really having to muscle through it because it was disgustingly nauseating. But we have no reason to believe that it was a red tide. Could have been a red tide? Could have been. But the Bible says it was blood. I'm just assuming it was blood. It doesn't really matter. Either way, it ruined all of the water, and it showed the power of God, and all the fish died, and that killed their fish. That destroyed their water, and that was an incredibly difficult thing. And the Bible tells us it went on for a whole week. For a whole week. But the magicians were able to mimic it, and so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take this to heart. Probably he went in, popped a bottle of wine or a thing of wine or whatever, and he drank stuff that's been stored for him. And so he didn't really suffer. His people suffered, but he was doing just fine up there in his nice walled palace protected by his guards. Wasn't really affecting him. He can deal with it for a week. His people can deal with it for a week. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen. Then verse 24, the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And seven full days passed, even the Lord had struck, after the Lord had struck the Nile. So God was gracious to allow them to 
be able to dig wells along and be able to get some water that had filtered out, and that was able to be drank, uh, drank by them. So he was gracious enough to allow them to have access to some water so that the whole nation didn't die. That was very gracious. God didn't have to do that, but he did that. But I want to give you just a couple thoughts, and we'll wrap up with this one. Here is Moses standing, get the picture in your mind here, standing by the shore of the Nile, pondering and thinking about this river that had been the place, a graveyard for Hebrew boys that had been chucked into the river to their death. And for the first time, the Egyptians see the river the way God sees the river. It was reprehensible. It was nauseating. It was disgusting. It was horrific to the nostrils and the nose and the face and the presence of God ever before it ever got cursed. Because they had taken this lifeline and they had used it for destruction and they had destroyed child after child after child, thrown into the river and killed. And Moses being one of those that had been placed in the river to die, but yet God preserved them. And so Moses, being a victim of that same curse, he stands a, uh, a survivor of a late-term abortion, if you will. And he stands there by the river, pondering what God has done. His name forever being connected with it, because it's Moshe, it was, means to be drawn out of the river. So here he is standing by this river that was meant for his destruction. Many of his, his uh, family, friends, whatever, have been destroyed, killed in this. People he would have grown up with that would have been 80 years old, they're all dead because of this river. And now God has brought a curse upon it the river used for death god used to save him and now has used for judgment against pharaoh and the place that they went for life has now become a curse and they are at the end of themselves revelation chapter 16 referring to one of the bowls of wrath at the end of time says this verses six five through seven just are you just or righteous are you god O holy one who is and who was for you brought these judgments. It's talking about a future judgment, but it mirrors this judgment. For they have shed the blood of saints and of prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So God justly and righteously brings judgment upon them to picture the wickedness of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh. And yet, even in the midst of that, he shows mercy. There's two other plagues that happen here. Um, There's the plague of frogs, and I'll I'll talk about this more in detail next week. And then there's the plague of gnats. But I want to end with this image. Uh, This is one of the frog goddess of frogs' fertility and resurrection that they worshipped, um, kind of a reincarnation theme. Uh, and then this is Osiris. And he's the god Osiris standing before him, some servants, and they have a scale. See the scale? And they're measuring the soul of a person, the heart of a person, to determine whether or not they can be let into the afterlife or sent off into judgment. 
And when, when you, just to bring it full circle, we're talking about a passage where God is now declaring, that he is showing that he has not forgotten, he is not off the map, he didn't create the world and then go off in a far distant place, but he is intimately involved in his creation and concerned about his name and his glory being spread throughout the earth. And he has come in confrontation with the most powerful man in the world, the most powerful a country, nation, army in the world, and he has set his affections upon his people that are in captivity and bondage, and he's in the process of setting them free and showing that he alone is worthy of worship and of honor and of praise and of glory. He alone is the God of salvation, and yet the Hebrew people are battling and the Egyptian people are battling, choosing a system where you die and you hope that you stand before a God that will measure and say, you know what, I think you're all right. I'm going to go ahead and let you in. And just like Belshazzar found out in the book of Daniel, you have been weighed and you have been found wanting. You have been weighed and the scales are tipped against you. And you don't get in. And all of us one day are faced with this reality. And if we stand saying, well, I've tried to be good enough and I've tried to do this and I've tried to do that and whatever, and we have bought into the deluding lies that have been preached and have been taught and have been passed down. I'm, I'm shocked as I drove Interstate 40 back from Memphis here and every once in a while you see a billboard, you see a sign and, and, and all of us has become so immune to it. Repent or you will likewise perish or uh, for God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We see these signs and we drive past them and I just, and I, I, my initial thought was, who reads those? Who cares about them? Who listens to those? And I realized it occurred to me that, you know what, we've come to a point in society where I don't even think anybody even cares or thinks about life after death. Nobody thinks about eternity. Nobody thinks about hell. And I think everybody just assumes that they're going to end up at this scene and it's going to be all right. Whatever the God that is a figment of their imagination that is created after themselves, that they believe in, He'll somehow weigh them and they'll somehow slide through on a curve and it'll be all right and and it'll be all right. And we don't really think very long about the afterlife. We don't really think long about what happens after we die. We don't really think about the gods that we worship, that we have often constructed or we bought into lies about and we believe a lie. Deception. So my prayer, as we sang before preached this morning, that we would see Christ. I want you to know, Jesus is not some mythological creature, but he justly came and he allowed the wrath that we all deserve to be poured out upon himself so that when our lives are weighed for those who have repented and trusted in Christ, it's going to be all right. Because if you trust in his righteousness, it is sufficient to deal with your sin. And his blood on the cross is sufficient to pay for the wrath that you and I deserve. And so we have a world out there that has bought into lies, that is believing lies, that are perishing. A world that is perishing. And then ourselves, I beg you to assess your life, assess your theology, assess your doctrine, and think about these things. Ask the hard questions. And say, have I repented and have I trusted fully in Christ's righteousness and His sacrifice for my place? to give me salvation? Or am I trusting in some other constructed, pretend belief system that I have borrowed from a lot of different ideas? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would drive home these truths to us, God, that you would give us insight into this reality, that we would not believe 
in the lies that this world has told. We would not buy into the, the deception that hey, it's just about love. And if we just love one another, love this, love that, whatever, which has just never <laughs> been demonstrated by those religions and often not demonstrated in the false forms of Christianity. That we're somehow it's going to work out. But God, that we would trust in your justice. You are both just and the justifier. You dealt with sin in a righteous, legal, right way by punishing your son who willingly placed himself on the scales for us. And because of that, Father, if we stand in his righteousness, then we're good. We're all right. Lord, awaken to us the fact that you are the one who causes to be. You are the one who who doesn't just bless the river. You created the river, God. May we not trade the worship of our the one true God who caused everything to be for some figment of our imagination or things that are created. But God, reveal in ourselves, would you jealously cut out, illuminate, destroy any false beliefs that we have, trusting in our own works or things of this world for our righteousness and our hope? And may you just show us Christ. May we know that where else can we go? Where else can we possibly go? Because you alone have the words of eternal life. And Father, if that is true for us, may it be true for those that we know, those that we come in contact with this week, that we would be compelled to proclaim that regardless of the challenges or the opposition that we feel or we are confronted with, knowing you're the God who rescues. You are the God who saves. In Jesus' name, we pray, we give, we worship.